If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In January 1742, a ramshackle boat washed up on the Brazilian shoreline. Inside were 30 men, half-starved and close to madness. Claiming to be survivors of the shipwrecked British vessel The Wager, they told an incredible tale of survival on the high seas. The men were hailed as heroes, until, six months later, another ship turned up. And these castaways had a very different story to tell about what had happened on The Wager. Author David Gran charts this gripping story in a new book, and I spoke to him to uncover the tale. Your new book, The Wager, tells the story of a British ship that was wrecked off the coast of Patagonia in 1741. But in fact, that shipwreck is actually only a small part of what turns out to be a fairly incredible, and I think it's fair to say fairly hideous, story of survival. So you open your story with the arrival of 30 half-starved, dishevelled men on the coast of Brazil. Um, And this ragtag bunch had a story to tell, a pretty dramatic story. What was that story? 
So yeah, so when they suddenly, uh, a little boat, ramshackle boat, drifts up onto the coast of Brazil, and on board are these 30 men whose bodies are completely emaciated. They are so weakened, many of them cannot even stand. But one of them announces that they were the survivors of his majesty's ship, the Wager, and they had been shipwrecked on this desolate island, and after building this ramshackle craft, they had traveled some 3,000 miles over more than three months. Um, uh, it's one of the longest castaway voyages ever recorded. And they are greeted and healed for their ingenuity and bravery. But then, of course, another little boat washes the shore several months later, this time on the other side of South America, off the coast of Chile. And this boat is even smaller. Um, and on board are only three men um, who are in even worse condition, including the captain of the wager, who is so delirious he cannot even recollect his name. But after he recovers, he levels a shocking allegation and says that those men who had preceded him and gone to Brazil were not actually heroes, they were mutineers. And then that sets off a wild storm. <laughs> Indeed, a very wild storm. So you have very different competing accounts here of what happened um, on the wager. A lot of time has passed since the 1740s. So how are you piecing these things together to, to come to the truth? Yeah. So one of the remarkable things is... Um, after these men had waged this kind of extraordinary battle against the elements, they had battled scurvy and typhoons and tidal waves, battled the elements on the island, battled starvation, even battled their own shipmates on the island as they had descended into a real-life Lord of the Flies. Several of them make it back to England, and after everything they've been through, they are summoned to face this court-martial um, and if they do not tell a convincing tale, they could be hanged. So many of them publish their accounts and give testimony to what had happened. And these are very conflicting versions. And it triggers this great war over the truth. So there is this kind of surprising treasure trove of primary documents. You have not only their accounts that they released, you have the court-martial testimony. And you also have, and this really shocked me, you have all these logbooks and journals and diaries and muster books, many of them which survived for hundreds and hundreds of years. They survived, you know, these, you know, these, the typhoons. Uh, some of these documents went around the world. Some of them survived the shipwreck, uh, and you can still get them. So I was shocked to find that there was so much material that would enable you to reconstruct this in a very vivid uh, manner. Absolutely. And vivid is the word. So I wonder if we could rewind now to the very beginning of the story. Can you give us a bit of context about the British Navy at this time? What were their priorities on the oceans and where did the wager fit into that? Yeah, so this happened obviously during the period of imperialism um, and colonialism, a very destructive age. And the British Empire was really seeking to uh, expand its reaches, its trade uh, into Latin America, which was uh, at that point had been largely dominated by Spain. 
And a war breaks out at this time between England and Spain. It's got a kind of absurd name. It's known as the uh, the War of Jenkins here. And that's because a story circulates about a British merchant captain whose ship, a merchant ship, was uh, boarded by Spanish forces in the Caribbean and his ear was cut off. And there are all these cries, not just for an eye for an eye, but an ear for an ear. The story was in many ways used and, and kind of ginned up as a pretext by imperialists who were seeking to expand uh, the British Empire. So uh, the, the Admiralty and the Empire designed a kind of small mission during this war to a secret mission to try to capture a Spanish galleon that was filled with treasure, which was known as the prize of all the ocean. And the wager is part of this mission. There are four other warships and a couple other ships in the squadron, and they are to embark to round Cape Horn off the tip of South America, enter into the Pacific, and the plan and hope was for to intercept this galleon while it traveled between Mexico and the Philippines. And what can you tell us about the men who were on board for this voyage? Because it wasn't necessarily the most illustrious collection, was it, within the crew? <laughs> it was a bit ragtag, yes. Britain at that point did not have conscription and it had exhausted its supply of volunteers for the Navy. So desperate for men to man these ships, they send out uh, press gangs to round up many of them. And these people are kind of, you know, if they had any telltale signs of a mariner, if they had kind of the trousers or the round hat or the checkered shirts, or if they had even tar smeared on their fingertips because tar was used on ships to say, oh, that's a mariner. They would seize them and they would force them to go. So many of the men were pressed and then they were still short of men. And the Admiralty went so far as to round up soldiers from a from an basically a pension home a retirement home many of them were missing an assortment of limbs some of them were so sick they had to be lifted onto the ships in uh stretchers that's they literally were lifted so they were essentially sailing to the death so you had a wild mix of people and what was so interesting about the ships at this time is you know, they were really these floating civilizations where strangers were thrown together from all walks of life. So you had these pressmen, you also had aristocrats, you had dandies, you had city paupers, you had professionals, you had craftsmen, you had free black seamen. And somehow they all have to be kind of structured and bound together into what Admiral Nelson had referred to as a band of brothers. So managing this this ragtag bunch of crewmates was a pretty difficult task then. And the man who had to take on that task partway through this journey was a man called David Cheap. Can you tell us about him and some of the challenges he faced as the captain? Yeah, so Cheap was a, a, is a really interesting figure. He was somebody who on land was kind of always kind of dogged by troubles. He was uh, dogged by creditors and, and chased by creditors because he had a lot of debt. But he always sought refuge at sea. And he had dreamed, he had this kind of corrosive, burning ambition to become a captain of a ship. Uh, and during this voyage, he finally gets his opportunity. He is promoted from a lieutenant to captain of the wager. So he finally obtains his, 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 his long simmering dream to be captain of a ship and to possibly capture a lucrative prize. And his challenge is enormous because he is a new found captain and he has to 
through regimen, through ideally through inspiration, to kind of guide these people and to mold them together. He was a very skilled seaman. He was very brave, but he was also very tempestuous, very dogged, and and rigid. While he's on the ship, he does a good job. But once the ship wrecks, things begin to fall apart. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So as we've alluded to, the shipwreck is coming. But before that, were there any signs of things going wrong aboard the wager? Oh, the challenges were so enormous. I mean, they, many of them set out with dreams of glory. Cheap set off with dreams of glory. Dreams that they were all going to return with wealth because the mission had a whiff of piracy about it. You know, seamen back then got a share of the prize so you could come back uh, a wealthy person. But almost immediately things begin to go wrong. Firstly, have to get around Cape Horn. Now, the seas around Cape Horn are notorious. They are among the most violent seas in the world. This is in part because the seas, that's the only place in the globe where the seas travel around the earth completely uninterrupted by land. They're not blocked anywhere. So they accumulate power over 13,000 miles. A wave around Cape Horn can dwarf a 90-foot mast. There are the strongest currents on Earth around Cape Horn as they funnel through there at the tip of South America. And then there are the winds, which can accelerate to hurricane force and even reach 200 miles per hour. Herman Melville, the novelist who rounded the Cape Horn, compared it uh, to Dante's Inferno, to the hell 
in Dante's Inferno. And so as they're coming around Cape Horn, the squadron is just battered by storms day and night. They are just banding about these ships as if they were just these pitiful rowboats. The wager loses one of its masts. And they know at that point, she knows he's going to need every member of the crew on board if they're going to be able to persevere. But it's right around them where many of the men cannot even raise from their hammocks because they are suffering from a mysterious illness known as scurvy. So do you think that that's where things really went wrong, this inability of the crew to rally in difficult circumstances? Or was it was it avoidable? Was the weather just not combatable? I think it was, it was uh, unavoidable. I mean, you could say that the seeds of this mission and its destruction were part of its very beginning back in England when they rounded up men who were ill-suited for this expedition. It was poorly funded in that regard. It was kind of typical of many wars where there's a great clamor for, for war, but a reluctance to actually properly fund it and design the mission. So in that sense, I think the seeds were part of its origin. But once they find themselves in that situation, the obstacles they face were enormous because when they're battling these seas and then they suffer one of the worst outbreaks of scurvy ever recorded, um, you know, many of the men begin to lose their uh, teeth, their hair falls out, even the cartilage that glues together their bones seems to be coming undone. There was one man who had been in a battle 50 years earlier where he had fractured a bone. That bone had obviously healed over five decades, but suddenly it just mysteriously breaks in the same exact place. And many of the men begin to go raving mad. So imagine this, they are coming around Cape Horn in this storm and many of the men are dying. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of them die. Their bodies just tossed overboard. At times the ships did not even have enough men to, um, to, to unfurl and work the sails on the boat. So they are just in enormous trouble and they are striving desperately to stay together because they know if they separate and if something happens, if they did wreck, there would be nobody to rescue them. So they're firing their guns repeatedly in these storms to signal their location. And yet the wind just drowns out the booming sound and in the wild storm, they're eventually all separated. Captain Cheap and the wager and his men soon find themselves all alone, effectively left to their own destiny. So what can you tell us about that fateful wreck and how the crew responded to it? Yeah, so Cheap manages to guide them around Cape Horn, but like so many seamen, like not like so many, like all seamen in that day, they did not know precisely where they were on the map because they could determine their latitude easily by reading the stars. But they had no way of precisely knowing their longitude because you needed a reliable clock and they had not yet been in invented then. And so they had to rely on dead reckoning, which you know, essentially amounted to informed guesswork and a leap of faith. There's a reason why it was called dead reckoning. And um, so as they're coming up the Chilean coast, their navigator's estimation of the wager's longitude turns out not only to be wrong, but wrong by hundreds of miles. And suddenly they're barreling toward land. They're trapped in a, in a gulf that's known as um, the Gulf of Sorrows, or as some prefer to call it, the Gulf of Pain. And they hit a submerged rock, and the ship begins to teeter. 
an anchor goes flying and it actually plunges through the floor of the ship, leaving a gaping hole. Then another wave comes and it sweeps the wager off the rocks. And the wager is suddenly careening through these minefield of rocks uh, without a rudder, because the rudder had shattered, with water pouring through this hole. And finally, it smashes into another series of rocks and begins to rip apart. The planks shatter, the decks cave in, some of the masts come down, water is flooding the bottom of the ship, rats are scurrying upward. Those who had been suffering scurvy, who were too weak to get out of their hammocks, drown. There wasn't time to save them. But some of them climb to the upper reaches of the ruins of the wreck because the ship did not immediately sink. It became wedged between these rocks. And they look out, and there in the distance, they see an island shrouded in mist. And they manage using a transport boat, essentially a rowboat, uh, to ferry about 145 survivors from the ship. There had been originally about 250 men that set out on the wager, and about 145 survive, and they get to the island, and they think, ah, this may be our salvation. And yet that's really where the real hell begins. So we have these survivors on the island. What happens then? They quite quickly splinter into factions. Can you tell us about those factions and how they responded to the wreck, who they held to blame? Yes. So they get to the island and they find that it's windswept, it's freezing, it's barren. And worst of all, they they can find virtually no food. And they, early on, cheap, tries to impose order. He believes he should remain commander because he was the captain of the ship. And he tries to govern by the same rules and order that existed on the ship. But they begin to fracture into warring factions. There's one small group that the others refer to as the seceders. And they just basically roam around the island as these kind of piratic marauders, um, a very terrifying group who are unleashed violence. And then in the main camp, there is a group that remains loyal to cheap, but more and more of the men are gravitating towards a man named John Bulkley, who had been the gunner on the ship. In many ways, he was the most skilled seaman on the wager, and he was an instinctive leader. But because he didn't come from the aristocracy at that time, he knew he never had a chance to be captain of a ship. But here on the island, in this democracy of suffering, he begins to emerge as a commander, and more and more of the people gravitate them, gravitate toward him, and he invokes such populist phrases as life and liberty. So did the crew just gravitate towards him because they trusted his instincts and his skills more than Cheeps? They thought that he was a better leader if they wanted to survive. Is that why? Yes, yes. I think there were a few reasons. One was um, there was grumbling about Cheap for being not altering his course. So some blamed him uh, for the wreck, but he also was very rigid on the island. He was very insecure about his power. He was very desperate to hold on to it. And he lacked some of the natural abilities of leadership to inspire the men, to get them to work together. Now, he faced enormous challenges. You can have a good deal of sympathy. He didn't, you know, had his, had his circumstances been different, he might have been a successful commander. But under these, under these circumstances, these extreme conditions, he lacked some of the gifts of leadership. 
and Bulkley had them. And there's a bit of a class struggle, even though they wouldn't use those terms on the island. And more people gravitate toward Bulkley because they see they have a better chance to survive. There's also a divide almost philosophically. And what's interesting is even in these extreme circumstances, they hold these philosophical debates over the nature of leadership, what makes a leader, should you ha- be a leader just because it's your title? Bulkley makes arguments that in this state of nature, that the old rules that govern it will no longer hold, and they have to come up with their own rules to survive. Cheap is also bound by great senses of duty and loyalty, and almost determined to, to seek redemption after the loss of the ship. And he believes they must somehow get off the island and continue with the expedition. And Bulkley and the other men are like, many of the other men are like, you know, I think we've had enough at this point. We just want to go home. <laughs> so you have these two factions, these two main factions, um, one under Cheap and one under Bulkley. How do they begin to get off the island? You know, they are such warring factions. There are actually some murders. Some of the men succumb to cannibalism. When they fracture into camps at one point, even though the two main camps are only, you know, you know, probably about 20 yards. <laughs> 20 yards separated themselves, they will actually send emissaries back and forth, like diplomats, to communicate. They begin to get arms off the ship from the wreckage to salvage them. So they become these two very militarized armed camp. But they briefly unite over a scheme, a desperate scheme to get off the island, which is to build a castaway boat partly from remnants of one of the transport boats, which they salvage from the wreck to expand it and build it. And they begin to build it. And for a moment, they kind of work together thinking this, you know, this could be our salvation, these glimmers of salvation. But as they are toiling on the boat, the the tensions between the groups escalate again because they come up with two very different plans of how to use this castaway boat, their arc of salvation, as they refer to it, um, once it's completed. Cheap wants to head north towards where the Spanish occupy Chile and have settlements to try to capture a ship and hopefully rejoin Anson at a rendezvous point. Anson had been the commodore of the expedition and to rejoin the other ships and to continue on. That's his sense of duty, his sense of determination, his still pursuit of glory. Bulkley comes up with a completely different scheme in many ways, no less dangerous, which is to actually sail south in the boat to go away from where the Spanish were, but to go all the way south through the Strait of Magellan, which are these treacherous seas, and then up the other side in the Atlantic, up the coast of South America, all the way to Brazil, which would have been about 3,000 miles. But he wanted to avoid any kind of conflict with Spain. He thought they would just get destroyed and he thought Cheap's mission was a suicide mission. And tensions increasingly mount. So what was the progress of both of these plans? What can you tell us about what happened next? Well, at one point, Cheap in his desperation to maintain control and power fears that a seaman is plotting a mutiny and he ends up coming out of his tent in the rain. He takes a gun and he ends up shooting the men without questions. As he writes in his account, he was forced to proceed to extremities. 
but rather than quell the rebellion, the growing discontent with them, it only stirs it. And eventually a band of ragtag followers of Bulkley, all armed, burst into Cheap's tent one night. They tie him up and they basically rebel and mutiny against him. And then they end up leaving Cheap on the island with just a few of his followers and head off in the castaway boat. So why didn't they kill Cheap? Surely that would have been a simpler solution. It's hard to say because they never explicitly say why they don't kill him. I think they thought, um, and now I am interpreting, but I think they knew if they got back to England and Cheap was with them, he might accuse them or he would accuse them of mutiny and they might be hanged. In leaving him behind on the island, they were convinced it was essentially a death sentence, that that they would die on the island. So they didn't have to cross that threshold of shooting him and murdering him, but they could leave him um, and still feel confident that he would never reemerge in England to give his side of the story. But of course they were wrong there. And the twist in that tale, of course, was that Cheap did not die on the island. How did he get off then if if the main boat had been taken by um, Bulkley and his followers? So uh, Cheap and uh, a few of his followers, um, he only had a few with him at that time, they are able to build a little, use and kind of refurbish a little transport boat, a little castaway boat. So they are eventually rescued by a group of indigenous Patagonians who lead them on this their own extraordinary journey that takes many months as well. Um, and they go north to uh, an island called the island of Chiloé, where there is a Spanish settlement. But there, even though they make it eventually in this kind of dreadful condition, they are actually then imprisoned. So it will take them ages and ages uh, to get back eventually to England. Bulkley and his group make it back much sooner, but uh, Cheap um, will return with his followers six years after the date that they had left England. So for example, there was a midshipman with Cheap, a man, a, a boy at the time named John Byron, who would go on to become the grandfather of the poet Lord Byron. He was only 16 so he when he left England on this voyage. By the time he gets back to England, he is 22 and his family can't recognize him. So we have Cheap and Byron and some others, as you say, languishing in South America. What happened to Bulkley and his, his crew? Yeah so, yeah, so Bulkley gets back to England and with his crew and Bulkley decides to publish his journal his version of events to try to ensure that he will never be prosecuted and hanged for alleged mutiny. And he does. It's, um, and the book kind of causes a sensation. It depicts the captain in a very negative light, Captain Cheap. Um, and, and, and what's so interesting in these various accounts is you see how each individual ends up shaping their own story to emerge as the hero of them, to live with what they have done or haven't done, and at the same time to also try to save their own lives. There's a famous line by Joan Didion, the, the writer, 
where she says, we all tell ourselves stories in order to live. But in their case, they quite literally had to tell their stories in order to live. So Bulkley shares his story and he is allowed, he is not prosecuted. The Admiralty kind of decides, well, let's wait to see if Cheap ever emerges. Nobody at that point knows what had happened to Cheap. Even when he's imprisoned, nobody yet knows that he is alive. But then the story kind of seems to blissfully fade away. The Admiralty and the Empire don't really like this story. <laughs> I mean, the, it doesn't make um, uh, their officers uh, and their and their crew look very good. It's a scandalous. So it kind of blissfully fades away, especially after Commodore Anson, who had been the leader of the expedition. He had left with a large squadron and down to only one ship. Only one ship, he managed to actually capture the galleon. And this becomes this kind of triumphant narrative in Great Britain. At that time, the war had kind of descended into a kind of grisly stalemate. But here was news at last of a victory. And so that is celebrated. And so I think there's a good expectation, hope that the whole wager affair will just kind of blissfully fade away. But then... Finally, six years after he had left England, emerges on a boat, Captain Cheap, and he is burning for vengeance. And I imagine that his arrival back in England did not go down well with Bulkley and the others who had, as you say, had their own story of events um, taken up in Britain. What happened when Cheap came back? So when Cheap comes back, it can no longer be ignored. He is accusing Bulkley and his group not only of a full-blown mutiny, but also of leaving him and his few followers to die on the island. Bulkley and his men charged cheap with perhaps the gravest offense of all uh, under the rules and regulations of the Admiralty and the Navy, which was homicide. Homicide was one, the one rule in the in the rules uh, of the Navy where there was no leeway, leeway in punishment if you were convicted of homicide. Homicide was the one charge which, if you were convicted of, left no leeway uh, in punishment. You would be sentenced to death. And so they are summoned to face this court-martial back in England. And now, after they'd waged this great war against the elements, both sides begin to wage this war over the truth. Can you tell us about that court-martial and what its outcome was? So what's so crazy is they, you know, Bulkley and his followers are literally praying before the court-martial expecting to be hanged, and they had very, a very good reason to be hanged. And then they go into the court-martial, and they're not asked any questions about the alleged crimes on the island. They're only asked about what caused the wager to wreck off the island? Cheap isn't asked about the shooting. Bulkley isn't asked about the alleged mutiny. I would compare it to if you were stopping a driver in a car and the authorities found a dead body, but they only asked the driver why he or she had a busted taillight. <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes clear that the authorities don't really like either of the competing versions of the story because they both 
make the, the 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 British Empire, which was supposed to, you know, lay claim to this idea that its civilization was superior uh, to others to kind of justify the expansion of the empire. It made the vanguard of the empire, it made the British officers and crew, these supposed apostles of civilization, they look more like brutes than gentlemen. And they prefer the triumphant tale of Commodore Anson capturing uh, the galleon. That was the story they wanted to tell. That was the mythic version of the sea. And so they just let everybody go. They just let them go. They all walk away. And as one historian says, it became the mutiny that never was. So really, they they were more keen on hushing it all up and brushing it under the carpet than holding anyone to account. In the Great War stories, they had chosen the version they wanted to tell, this mythic version of the sea. So thank you so much, David, for joining me. I think we've covered a really, really complex story here. And if people want to know more about the journeys and all the things that happened on them, which we haven't been able to cover here, they should go and look at your book. But just to um, finish on this complex story with a very simplistic question. Yes. After w- after working on this story and delving into all these sources, whose side were you on at the end of it? Oh, I leave that to you, the reader, to judge. (laughs) I tried to tell the story and structure it uh, in an unusual way, which is from the point of view of three members of the ship, uh, of the wager, Captain Cheap, John Bulkley, the gunner, and John Byron, the young boy who was the midshipman who would go on to become Lord Byron's grandfather. And I lay out the story from their points of view. You get to see how they each shade their stories how they burnish certain facts and leave out other facts. And hopefully in reading each, the reader can come to their own judgment and help form history's judgment. So I don't mean to duck your question, um, but I do think it is important for the reader to kind of discern. And I, I myself will be very curious where readers come out. Whose side will they pick? Um, who will they identify with? Will their allegiance shift as the story goes on? Mine certainly did too, because one of the things that's so remarkable about the story, and one of the things that drew me to it is that while they're on the island and even on the ship, it becomes a laboratory testing the human condition under these extreme circumstances. And inevitably, it reveals the secret nature or the hidden nature of each person, both the good and the bad. And so one moment, you know, you can just be kind of awed by these acts of leadership and courage and bravery. And then a moment later, you can just be shocked by the same person's act of brutality. That was David Gran speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. David's book is The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck, Mutiny and Murder, which is published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.